Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord, who was a descendant of David, according to the flesh, and was appointed to be the powerful Son of God according to the Spirit of holiness by the resurrection of the dead. Through Him, we have received grace in apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of His name among all the Gentiles, including you, who are also called by Jesus Christ. To all who are in Rome, loved by God, called as saints. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's ask God to speak to our hearts this morning. Lord, we want to come before you, Father, and ask you to teach us, instruct us, convict us, God. Encourage us this morning with the Bible. God, we just want to thank you together as your church, your people, for your word that you've given it to us in the scriptures. We thank you for the book of Romans. God, I'm so excited for all that you're going to teach us as we study it together. I pray that above all, you would stir greater, truer worship in us for you. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Today is a very exciting and very important day. We are about to embark on what I would describe as a long journey together. Today is our first week studying and teaching all the way through the book of Romans. So the New Testament is comprised mostly of, not only, but mostly of what we call epistles. An epistle is a letter written by one of the apostles. And of all the epistles in the New Testament, Romans is the longest. So the plan is we're going to take 28 weeks, not including our series for Christmas and Easter, 28 weeks to work through the first eight chapters of Romans. And then next summer, summer of 2024, we're going to spend about 15 weeks. We're going to get into the Gospel of John. And then next fall, we will begin part two, chapters nine through 16. So in total, it's going to take us almost two years to teach through and study through the book of Romans together. And it's going to be awesome. <laughs> it's going to be awesome. I don't know if you realize it or not. My guess is some of you don't even believe this. But there is almost nothing more exciting or more important that you could give your life to than studying the Bible. Did you know that? I became convinced of this when I was 19 years old. 19. For most people, that is the peak of life's excitement. And I would say that was the case for me. Everything is new. Everything is, is shiny. You have the whole world at your fingertips. Everything's sort of available to you for the first time. At 19, uh, I was between my freshman and sophomore year of college. And what I discovered is that all the friends and all the fun and all the pleasure and success and opportunity that I thought was going to satisfy me, didn't. That's what happened. The things that I thought were so important and so full of substance, if I could just get my hands on them, weren't. They were shallow. They were empty. 
And where I found real substance, where I discovered something that was actually compelling to me, surprisingly, was in the Bible. (laughs) That's where I found it at age 19. And for me, that came primarily from reading the book of Romans. So I love this book. All of the Bible is important. All of it is necessary. All of it is valuable. I would never want to make you think there are certain parts of the Bible that are better or more important than others. But I have to admit, I am especially excited to teach through, study through the book of Romans together. Martin Luther, who was the father of the Protestant Reformation, he wrote this about the the book of Romans. He said, Romans is worthy not only that every Christian should know it word for word by heart, but occupy himself with it every day as the daily bread of the soul. It can never be read or pondered too much. And the more it is dealt with, the more precious it becomes and the better it tastes. That was Martin Luther, one of his contemporaries, the British reformer, William Tyndale. He was the first person to translate the Bible into English. He wrote in 1534, he said, I think it meet, which is an old English way of saying appropriate, that every Christian may not only know Romans by rote, or by memory, and without the book, but also exercise himself therein ever more continually as with the daily bread of the soul. I'm not going to ask you guys to memorize the entire book of Romans (laughs) over the course of the next couple years, which is what these men suggest. I wouldn't discourage it. But I do want to challenge us as a church from the outset to be committed to work hard to study this book. Can we do that together? Let's be committed to working hard to study the book of Romans. I'm going to give you three practical applications before we even jump into the text this morning. So how can you be committed to working hard to study this book? Number one, read the whole thing. This is a letter. That's what it is. It's a book of the Bible, but it, it is a letter. And if you want to understand the nuances and the details, which we're going to work through verse by verse, sentence by sentence, sometimes word by word, because there's so much depth and richness to this book. But if you want to understand what we're talking about, you need to understand it in the context of the whole thing. It's 16 chapters, a little over 7,000 words. You could probably read it in 30 minutes if you wanted to. Maybe an hour if you want to go slow and really absorb it. But read the whole thing through like the original audience would have. Tried to do that this week and then continue to do that periodically over the course of the next couple years. Three months from now, read the whole thing again. A few months after that, read the whole thing again. Second application, get a study guide. Does anybody have a study guide that you can, you can put up in the air? Penny's got one. You guys got one. There are study guides available down at the Welcome Center, and they're $5. And they are $5 not so we can make tons of money. There's two reasons we charge for them. The first is just to mitigate some of our costs. These cost a lot of money to make. They are made soup to nuts in-house. All the graphic design, all the layout, everything. Uh, there are some tools that we borrow in there that are copyrighted, and, and uh, we have permission to use those. But for the most part, it is, it is created, produced, edited here in-house, and it costs a lot of money to do the creative side and also just to physically publish those study guides. So it mitigates some of our costs. But the second reason, and the more important reason, is that if you pay for something, you're much more likely to use it. That's what we found. And we want you to use this tool. This study guide, in my opinion, we've been producing study guides for every series since before I was even a pastor. And I think this is the best one. 
I'm not trying to oversell it or overhype it, but this is way more than just a journal. This is full of useful, practical tools that are going to help you study the Bible better. So get a study guide. Third application, last one. Use your pen. This seems so obvious to some of you, but, but, but use your pen. When you are writing, you're learning. So as you're reading the Bible, as you're thinking through something and you have a question, you have a thought, you're excited, there's something that becomes clear to you, or there's something that's really unclear. I don't get this at all. Write that down. Maybe it's a principle you see, maybe it's an application, but get in there and get your Bible messy. That's what you should do. Get your study guide messy. Use your pen. My hope, my prayer for this sermon series is that all of us here would produce more than we consume. So when you come here on Sunday morning and you sit and you listen to a pastor give a sermon, that is a form of consumption, and that's good. We need to consume. That's good. But my hope is that you produce way more than you consume in studying the Bible. So you come here, you consume teaching on Sunday morning, but then I want you to develop your own thoughts, develop your own convictions, develop your own questions of the text, and then share them with your spouse, with your kids, with your community group. Let's work hard together to meet God in this book. That's my challenge to you. Now, let's jump in. First seven verses, they're really a formal introduction that's what they are. And they answer three questions. The first is, who is the author? Who, is, who are we hearing from here? Who's writing? Verse 1, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God. Romans is written by the apostle Paul. And he describes himself here in three ways. First, he says he is a servant or literally a slave. It's the Greek word doulos. It means a slave of Christ Jesus. In the Roman world, to be the slave of a king, to be the slave of a royal official was considered an office of great honor and importance. So we're not to view this as if Paul is being self-deprecating or he's trying to be modest. He's simply saying, I serve Jesus. I am a slave to the king of kings. I represent him. Everything I do or say in this letter and in my life is going to be on his behalf. He's a slave of Christ. And if you know your Bible, then you already know that this was not always Paul's attitude toward Jesus. Paul was a Roman, I'm sorry, a Jewish Pharisee. He was a Jewish Pharisee. He was trained by a Jewish Pharisee, which means he was a very accomplished, very conservative Orthodox Jew. That's who he was. The most important thing in his life, in his world, was religious faithfulness. And he hated Jesus. He hated him. He viewed Jesus as a false prophet. He was a false teacher. He was a heretic leading people away from God. He was a threat to Israel. And Paul was so passionate about this particular issue that he made it his life's work as a Pharisee to stamp out Christianity. He threw Christians in prison. He had Christians executed. But then in Acts chapter 9, he had an encounter. He met the risen Jesus on the road to Damascus. And he was converted in a moment He became a believer, and he gave the rest of his life to serving Jesus Christ. 
He also describes himself as an apostle. So he's a slave of Christ and an apostle. This is an official office in the New Testament. There were three qualifications to be an apostle. You had to be an eyewitness of the resurrected Jesus. You had to be personally called and commissioned by Jesus himself. And you had to be authorized and sent out with Jesus's authority. And Paul met all three qualifications. He was unique in that he met these qualifications long after the resurrection and ascension of Jesus, long after Jesus commissioned the first 12 as apostles. But Jesus chose Paul. Jesus appeared to Paul in a much more supernatural way, and he chose Paul for a unique work, which is the next thing Paul mentions about himself. Paul was a missionary to the Gentiles. He says this in verse 5. Through him we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the Gentiles. That's non-Jews. So Paul, who was a Jew, who initially hated Christians and almost certainly also hated Gentiles, he at least turned his nose up at them. He was called by God to go persuade Gentiles to become Christians. (laughs) God does whatever he wants. We can make our own plans and we can, have, we can have our own trajectory, even with laser beam clarity and focus. But God is going to do with you what he wants to do with you. By the time Paul wrote Romans, he had already established himself as the most prolific missionary, not only in the first century, but in all of human history. He's the best one. He's the most impactful missionary who's ever lived. By the time he writes the book of Romans, he's preached the gospel, he's planted churches in every part of the Mediterranean world. You can read about this in the book of Acts, including southern and western Asia Minor. This would be like modern-day Turkey. He planted, shared the gospel, pioneered the gospel, and planted established churches with elders and structure in Antioch, Lystra, Iconium, Derby, Ephesus. If you just stop right there, most missionaries, church planners, pastors, that would be like three lifetimes worth of work. He also planted the church at Philippi in Thessalonica in the region of Macedonia. He planted the church in the city of Corinth in Greece. He was a missionary to the Gentiles. That's the author of Romans. It's the apostle Paul. Next, who's the audience? Paul's writing, who's he writing to? Verse 7. To all who are in Rome, loved by God, called as saints. That means they're Christians. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul's writing to Christians gathered in the church or churches in Rome. Now, we don't know exactly how the gospel spread to Rome. There's no account of this in the New Testament Almost certainly what happened is that there were Roman citizens, natives of Rome, who were at Pentecost, the Passover celebration in Jerusalem in Acts chapter 2. Some scholars estimate that there were as many as 100,000 Jews who lived in and around Rome during the time of Jesus. So the first Roman Christians were almost certainly ethnically Jewish Romans who were visiting Jerusalem for the Passover. They heard the gospel. They followed the instructions of Peter. They repented. They believed. They were baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And eventually, they returned. 
back to Rome where they shared the message with other Jews. And so the gospel spread. This would explain why the book of Romans quotes the Old Testament more than any other book in the New Testament. You're going to see this. We just got done studying the book of Genesis. There's a lot of Genesis in the book of Romans. And so it reads like it's written for a Jewish Christian audience. But look at what Paul says in verse 5. He says, Through him we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the Gentiles, non-Jews, including you, who are also called by Jesus Christ. So Paul calls them, he refers to them as Gentiles. He's like, you guys are Gentiles. He says the same thing in verse 13. He refers to them as Gentiles. So what is going on with that? Well, what is going on is that by the time Paul writes this letter, it's around A.D. 57. So a lot of time has passed since Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. And the Roman church, by this point, is mostly Gentiles. There are some Jews there mixed in, but they are in the minority. Another thing that we know historically, the Bible doesn't talk about this, but the emperor of Rome actually exiled all the Jews at one point in between Pentecost and when Paul writes this letter. For a few years, he kicked all the Jews out. There was too many riots. There was too much, there was too much conflict. And historians believe that that conflict was primarily about Jesus. So you had Jewish Christians who were coming to faith in Jesus, and then you had you had. Old Covenant Jews who said, no, Jesus is a heretic, Jesus is a phony, and there was conflict between them and fighting between them, and so the emperor said, okay, all the Jews out. You got you to get out of the city. At this point, they've been allowed back in, but that has disrupted the cultural balance, and so the Jews are in the minority. This is primarily a Gentile church at this point, but the whole church would have been well-versed in the Old Testament. And the whole church would have been very interested in the relationship between Jews and Gentiles, especially in context of the Old and New Covenant. How do these things work together? And that is a huge theme of the book of Romans. So that's the author and the audience next. And most importantly, what is the point? What is the main point of this book? Why is Paul writing to Christians in Rome? There's two sort of categories of motivation for Paul's letter. The first are practical reasons. And again, this is why you should read the whole letter, because we don't even get this until the end. Paul, Paul saves his kind of ask for the end, Romans 15, 20. Paul says, my aim is to preach the gospel where Christ has not been named, so that I will not build on someone else's foundation, which is exactly what he did. He went to places where nobody had heard the name of Jesus. And he shared the gospel, and he planted churches. Verse 21, but as it is written, those who were not told about him will see, and those who have not heard will understand. That is why I have been prevented many times from coming to you. Seems like what he's implying here is you guys already have heard the gospel. (laughs) You've already heard it. Churches are already established, and so my assignment from the Lord is not to go to you. Verse 23, but now... I no longer have any work to do in these regions. He's planted all the churches (laughs) in the Mediterranean world. And I have strongly desired for many years to come to you whenever I travel to Spain. For I hope to see you when I pass through and to be assisted by you for my journey there. Once I first enjoyed your company for a while. So at this point, Paul is on his way to Jerusalem. From Jerusalem, his plan is to go to Spain. He wants to make it to Spain to share the gospel and plant 
churches there. And he says, what I would really like to do is stop in Rome. And he wants to use Rome as a home base for his missionary journey to Spain. Long way between Jerusalem and Spain. It's like 2,000 nautical miles. Way longer if you go by land. And so he can't, he can't go back to Jerusalem for supplies or support. or It's too far away. And so he says, I want to use Rome as a launch pad for missionary work into a new place that's never heard the gospel. So those are the practical motivations, but then he also has theological motivations. In verse 1, he says, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God. Paul's main point in the whole letter to the Romans is to explain the gospel. It's that simple. It is to explain the gospel. The Greek word for gospel is the word euangelion. It is the announcement of good news. It could also be translated glad tidings. And this is part of what makes Romans such a remarkable letter, is that it isn't as dependent on the particular cultural setting and circumstances as other letters. So for example, when you read 1 Corinthians, Paul is respo- he's ri- it's Apostle Paul writing to a church in the city of Corinth, modern-day Greece, and he is responding to all kinds of different circumstances. So the church at Corinth was out of control. I mean, they, they were doing crazy things. They, they were having horrible attitudes. There were specific situations with specific people who were in grievous sexual immorality very publicly. They were practicing communion all wrong. There was selfishness. There was immaturity. And so Paul is addressing all these things. He's correcting these problems in the church, and he's responding to specific questions that they've apparently posed to him. Now, we don't have those letters, the correspondence going from the church to Paul, but we have the letter of 1 Corinthians. And you can glean so much from it, but there are questions. You you sort of have to piece together the cultural and historical puzzle. What is the situation that Paul is addressing. And of of course that exists in Romans. He's writing to people in a place, in a time. But it's different because he doesn't know these people. He's never been to Rome. He doesn't know about specific situations going on in the church. And so he's not responding to questions. He's not correcting false teaching. He's not giving them advice about specific circumstances. He is setting the table for a future visit. And to do that, he simply explains the gospel. That's what he's doing. Probably partially to credential himself, to say, hey, I'm an apostle. I'm legit. This is what I believe. This is what I teach. I'm looking for your support. And then partially because he wants to strengthen them. He wants to make sure, hey, whatever message has been received and established there needs to align with this. This is the gospel. These are its applications. And so he explains the gospel, and he does it with greater depth and clarity than any other single source in the Bible. That's what makes Romans so remarkable. One commentator I read said that the primary outline of the letter, the the outline, the sequence, the, the, the chronology of the letter is the inner logic of the gospel. That's, that's the way it flows. It is just simply the inner logic of the gospel. Now, as a guy who is very left-brained, that gets me really excited. <laughs> Romans is very easy to outline. It's very sequential. It's very logical and orderly. 
And that's why also when you read it, whether you're left-brained or right-brained, what you're going to notice is so much of it is directly applicable to your specific life circumstances. It is so helpful in that way. And you don't have to have tons of training in biblical hermeneutics to just pull principles and applications right out of it. We can see that even in Paul's introduction. In the introduction alone, okay, so seven verses. He's, he's simply formally introducing himself. He's not even gotten into the meat of potatoes in the f- meat and potatoes. In the first seven verses, he lists seven facts about the gospel. The whole thing's about the gospel, and to prove it to you, there are seven facts just in the introduction. Now, we're going look, to look only at five of them. We don't have time to go through all of them, but we're going to look at five. The first fact about the gospel, just in the introduction, is that the source of the gospel is God. The source of the gospel, Paul says, is God. Verse 1, Paul, servant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle and set apart for the gospel, the good news of God. This is really important. This is important. The good news does not originate with the authors of the New Testament. It doesn't come from Paul. It doesn't come from Peter. It doesn't come from the 12 disciples of Jesus. It is a message that comes directly from God himself. And it's a message that is not new in the first century. Paul says the source of the gospel is God. Next he explains the channel for the gospel is the scriptures. So the source of the news is God, but how does the news get delivered? He says... Verse 1, set apart for the gospel of God. Verse 2, which he promised. Who promised? God. The gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Beforehand, what does that mean? Before the events, before the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus, God already promised all of this. Where did he promise it? In the Scriptures. In the Holy Scriptures. One of the criticisms of Christianity is that it is novel. It's new. In terms of world history, it's it's the new kid on the block. So how could it possibly be true? It's so obviously invented by people 2,000 years ago. Hinduism predates Christianity. Buddhism predates Christianity. Tribal animistic religions, like those of the Native Americans, predate Christianity. So how could it possibly be true? People who say that, they don't understand the claims of Christianity. They don't understand the clear teaching of Paul right here. They don't understand the teaching of Jesus or any of the New Testament authors. Jesus came saying he was the fulfillment of the Old Testament scriptures. This is the message. He was the fulfillment of the promises. We just got done spending almost a year studying the book of Genesis. You guys should be very familiar with the promises of God given in the very beginning of human history. Jesus said he is the fulfillment of those promises and he's the fulfillment of the Old Testament scriptures, which go back 2,000 years before Jesus and which record events that go back to the very beginning of time. The source of the promise is the gospel is God. God communicated that promise to the world through authoritative prophets. 
in the Old Testament who wrote down what God superintended by the power of His Spirit. This is why Paul can call them holy scriptures. This is why on your Bible, if you have a physical Bible, it probably says the Holy Bible. Holy is a word that means set apart. It means divine. It means supernatural. How can we call the Bible, which is a compendium of all these different letters, books, historical records, poems, prayers, how can we call that holy? That's because of this right here. Paul says they're God's words. These are not words that came from people. These are words that, that were given to people to record by God. This has big implications for our understanding of the New Testament as well, because Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 2, 3. He says, we also speak these things not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the Spirit, the Spirit of God. So Paul, we already covered this, he viewed himself as an apostle, writing authoritatively as a representative of God and God's gospel. And this is how other Christian leaders and apostles viewed his writings as well. In 2 Peter 3, Peter says that some people try to distort Paul's letters just like they do with the rest of the scriptures. That is remarkable. So you have Peter, who's an apostle, looking at the writings of Paul and equating them to the Old Testament. He says they're the same as far as their authority, which means they're the same as far as their source. Source of the gospel is God. The channel for the gospel is the Bible. Third fact, the substance of the gospel is Jesus. So we know where it comes from. We know how the news is delivered. Now, what is it about? What's the point of it? It's Jesus. He says, verse 2, set apart for the gospel of God concerning his son, Jesus Christ our Lord, who was a descendant of David according to the flesh and was appointed to be the powerful son of God according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection of of the dead. The whole Bible is about the gospel. The book of Romans is all about the gospel. But what is the gospel? <laughs> what is the good news? I mean, there's all kinds of things that are good news. The Packers are playing today. That's good news. <laughs> what, what is this good news? Why is the whole Bible about this good news? Well, the good news is about Jesus. We haven't even gotten out of the introduction and already Paul tells us the good news is about Jesus. What does he want us to know about Jesus right here? First, that Jesus was the son of David according to the flesh. He very intentionally points this out. This means Jesus was a human being. We're dealing with a person, a real live person. He was an actual, literal man. And as a man, he had the right credentials to be the Messiah. The Messiah had to come from the kingly line of Judah. And more specifically, the line of David, because the Messiah was to be the king of Israel. This is what was prophesied. This is why they tried to make Jesus king. They tried to crown him king on Palm Sunday as he entered Jerusalem. But Paul says also, Jesus was the son of God, according to the Spirit. Look again at verse 4. He was appointed to be the powerful Son of God according to the Spirit of holiness by the resurrection of the dead. Now, it's not that Jesus became the Son of God or was literally appointed. A better translation would be that He was declared to be the powerful 
Son of God. The idea is that the resurrection proved what the Scriptures prophesied about Jesus. So Jesus came in humility. He came as a baby. He came as a human being. He got sick. He got tired. He was a real man. But at the resurrection, the whole world knew this is someone different. This is not a normal human being. This is the Son of God. This is what Jesus repeatedly taught, that He was and is and always will be the eternal Son of God. He's the second member of the Trinity become a man. So Jesus was really God and simultaneously really a man. Fourth fact about the Gospel. We know its source. We know how we receive it. We know what it's about. It's about Jesus. And then Paul says the gift of the Gospel is grace. The substance is Jesus, but the gift, what does it do? It's grace. Verse 5, through Him we have received grace. The good news is that Jesus, the eternal Son of God, became a man, and through that, God has offered grace. What does that mean? The Greek word is charis, and it means literally loving kindness or favor in this context. We've received loving kindness and or favor. What you need more than anything else in the world, more than anything, is the loving kindness of God. Every one of you. That's what you need. You need it more than money. You need it more than food. You need it more than pleasure. You need it more than security. You need it more than friends. You need God's love. You need His kindness towards you. And the core problem of humanity, you see this all throughout the Old Testament, all throughout human history, is that people don't have God's grace. People don't have God's love. They don't have His kindness. Instead, what they have is His wrath. We're going to skip ahead here. Romans 1.18, this is what Paul says. Just a little bit later. In chapter 1, he says, For God's wrath is revealed from heaven against all godlessness and unrighteousness of people who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. So the Bible is really clear. God is loving. In fact, God is love. The only reason love exists is because it flows from His nature. God is kind, and He is kindness itself. And all throughout human history, He is trying, He is endeavoring to show His loving kindness to His creation. But then that begs the question, if God is so loving and He's so kind, why would He be so full of wrath? Why would He be so vengeful when it comes to sin? And the answer is, if He really is loving and kind, then He must be full of wrath. He has to be. By definition, if He is love and kindness, He has to be full of wrath. That's what real love does when it sees injustice. Think about this for a second. You husbands, you dads here this morning, if somebody were to break into your house trying to do harm to your family, how would you respond? You would die in an effort to protect your family. Now, is that because you're so full of anger and wrath? 
No. It's because you are so full of deep, sacrificial love for your family. That's why. And that's where God's hatred for your sin comes from. It comes from his love for what is good and right and true and pure. He cannot be indifferent towards your sin. He has to punish it. So the question then is, how do you get his kindness? How do you get his love towards you? How can you receive his grace? Verse 5, through him. Through him. Through him we have received grace. Through Jesus. So Paul's already told us, Jesus' identity as God was revealed at the resurrection. And Jesus was resurrected because he was killed on the cross. And Jesus was killed on the cross as a man in your place. Jesus took the wrath of God for you so you could receive God's grace. That is the good news. The gift of the gospel is grace. Fact number five, the result of the gospel is faith with obedience. Again, verse five, through him we have received grace and apostleship. Why? What for? To bring about the obedience of faith. This is the result. How do you receive the grace of God in Jesus? Paul's going to argue at great length, only by faith. Only by faith. You do nothing. There is no work you can do. There's no steps you can follow. You do nothing. God does everything. This is one of the main points of the entire book of Romans. You cannot earn forgiveness. You cannot earn salvation. You cannot earn righteousness. But Jesus can. And Jesus did. This is why he had to become a man. God became a man to earn righteousness for you. Jesus lived a sinless, perfect life. He obeyed all of the law perfectly. And then he died. He took your sin and he offers you his righteousness. And you are only called to receive it in faith. But Paul puts a qualifier on it. Faith that is real is faith that works hard to obey Jesus. That's the point. It's a faith that says, just like Paul, I am a slave of Jesus Christ. Not so I can earn his love, but because I already have it. John Stott, in his commentary on Romans, says this. The response Paul looked for was a total, unreserved commitment to Jesus Christ, which he called the obedience that comes from faith. This is our answer to those who argue that it is possible to accept Jesus Christ as Savior without surrendering to Him as Lord. It is not. <laughs> very British, very straightforward. In other words, Paul's stated goal here is that you would believe the gospel and it would utterly change you. That's the goal. Right out of the gate that you would believe the gospel, you'd put your faith in Jesus, you'd receive God's loving kindness and his mercy through the cross, and it would flip your life up to, upside down. You would submit to God in faith. He wants you to obey God completely in faith. And believe it or not, there's more we could talk about. More facts about the gospel just in, in the introduction. 
We could talk about how the scope of the gospel is all the nations. We could talk about how the goal of the gospel is the glory of God. But we're going to stop on this point, and I want to close with a question. Here's the question. Do you desire and endeavor to obey God in faith? When you look at your motives, when you look at your thought process this week, this month, the trajectory of the last year or two, are you even considering how can I obey God in my life? Do you want to obey God? When you consider that God sent His Son to die for you on the cross, does it stir anything in you? Do you say, man, I just I want to I serve Him. I want to know Him. I want to give my life to Him in an act of gratitude because of what He's done for me. And are you trying to do it? It's one thing to kind of get emotionally stirred up on Easter or when you watch the Passion of the Christ or when you think about the cross, but then do you do anything with that desire? Are you trying to obey Him? Do you desire and endeavor to obey God in faith? If the answer is no, then you are almost certainly not a Christian. Almost certainly. Because this is the result of a changed life. Is that you will say, like Paul, I am a slave of Christ. My life is His. What I want more than anything, not perfectly. I'm going to struggle because I still have the flesh. I, I still am tempted. But what I want most is to follow after Him and obey Him. And if that's not your heart, then you're probably not a Christian. It doesn't matter what your church background is. It doesn't matter how many verses you have memorized. It doesn't matter whether or not you could explain to me the Romans road and the gospel. When I was 19 years old, I could have explained the gospel to you, I think, very well. I understood it cognitively, but it had not changed me internally. It had not brought about the obedience of faith. This is Paul's goal. It's not just to explain the gospel. It is to bring about the obedience of faith. And if you're thinking, man, I don't really have any desire to obey God. Like, if I'm honest, I don't have any desire to obey God, or I kind of do, but it's not strong enough that it actually moves me to any action, then I have good news for you. We're just getting started. (laughs) Paul is not done. That's just the introduction. And he's going to try to persuade you and convict you and compel you to receive God's grace in this book. And my prayer, my prayer is that we'd be a church full of people who obey God in faith, who don't just understand it. It's not just an idea. It's not just a doctrine, but it's something that has transformed us internally. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we... Just thank you once again for your word. Thank you for the Bible. Thank you for the gift of your grace offered in Jesus Christ. Pray, Lord, that you'd use this book to soften our hearts. God, I pray that you would use it to convict us of sin. You'd use it to encourage us toward obedience. God, I pray that we would have a better and clearer understanding of all that we have in Christ. We ask this in Jesus' name.